Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has expressed China's willingness to maintain high-level exchanges with Spain. The European Union has launched a naval mission in the Red Sea and the Gulf regions. Chinese provincial governments hold meetings to explore ways to boost their business environment and private sector on the first working day after the Spring Festival holiday. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Foreign Minister Wang Yi has expressed China's willingness to maintain high-level exchanges with Spain and promote bilateral ties to a new height. Wang Yi made the remarks while meeting with Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez in Madrid. Noting that last year marked the 50th anniversary of diplomatic relations between the two countries, Wang Yi said China is ready to work with Spain for better relations in the next 50 years. The senior diplomat also stressed the importance of the European Union, saying China supports the development and growth of the bloc. Before wrapping up his visit, Wang Yi also met with Spain's King Philip VI. Ken Brown has more details. Like visiting old friends. That's how Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi described his first return to Spain in nearly six years. Meeting with Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez on Monday, they discussed bilateral and global issues with a focus on closer economic and cultural cooperation. Sanchez later communicated on social media that China is a key partner in our fight against the climate emergency and for global peace and stability. Wang Yi later met the King of Spain at the royal residence. At the Tharthuela Royal Palace is where Foreign Minister Wang Yi met with King Felipe VI, a meeting that symbolized strong ties between the two countries at a really positive moment after successful celebrations of 50 years of official diplomatic relations in 2023. Spain's Prime Minister remarked on this positive moment, highlighting his trip to China last March when he met with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Sanchez discussed deepening ties and continuity in relations, stressing the importance of a balanced and reciprocal relationship. He and Wang also discussed the important role China can play in contributing to peace in the Ukraine and Gaza conflicts. On Sunday, China's senior diplomat talked about international dialogue and keeping global trade flowing. We need cooperation and not confrontation, dialogue instead of conflict, negotiation instead of dogma, and equality in the place of power. Jointly, we can revitalize the multilateral system with the United Nations at its core. We also have to be open, not closed. It's necessary to maintain the stability and smooth flow of the industrial supply chain and improve free trade center on the World Trade Organization. Wang brought good news to Spain with an announcement that restrictions on Spanish beef imports to China were to be lifted. Spain's Minister for Foreign Affairs, José Manuel Álvarez, called the development extraordinarily positive. More good news came in the form of a young giant panda couple that will soon arrive at Madrid Zoo. After visiting the King of Spain, Wang Yi travelled to France for the China-France Strategic Dialogue in an important year for both countries that celebrate 60 years of official diplomatic relations. That was Ken Brown on Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi's recent visit to Spain. For more, we're joined by Dr. Cui Hongjian. He is professor with Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Thank you, Dr. Cui. It's good to have you back on the show. Hi. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi mentioned that uh, his trip back to Spain is like uh, visiting, seeing an old friend. I mean, how do you comment on the current level of China-Spain relations, really? Mm. Indeed, as we know, uh, for the last decade, indeed, these relations between China and Spain uh, have, uh, you know, a long time and was a stable uh, cooperation. And uh, com- especially now, comparing with some uh, you know, relations between China and some other European countries, uh, we can find that the uh, stability and also uh, go forward and uh, having some more and more cooperation 
uh, would be a very, very remarkable characteristics for these uh, bilateral relations. As we know, uh, as a, a member of the uh, European Union, so uh, South European countries, uh, Spain uh, enjoyed its uh, cooperation with China on the uh, trade and the investment, some other industries like that. And uh, I think the more important, more important thing is between China and Spain, they do have a very high-level mutual trust politically, mm. especially now, as we know, uh, in the background of that so-called, uh, uh, as we know, this uh, uh, systemic uh, rivalry mm-hmm. from European Union or some other European countries. I think it uh, uh, showed a bigger value for this uh, relations between China and Spain. Mm. Uh, well, Dr. Sui, what are the main main goods and services that have been exchanged between Spain and China in the past few years? As we know, besides this uh, high level, I mean, uh, mutual trust uh, on political, some uh, diplomat, some other, I think the, uh, the economic and uh, technology and industry cooperation would be very, very, uh, you know, big highlights for these relations. For example, as we know, uh, now China and Spain, <laughs> they have a very good cooperation on the you know, agricultural uh, trade, mm-hmm. or agricultural, uh, you know, food, uh, food trade. As we know, Spain uh, has been to very important, uh, you know, powerhouse for this uh, agricultural, some other related uh, industry. And then now in Chinese market, we can have some more, uh, you know, uh, agricultural products from uh, Spain. And uh, besides that, uh, including the green economy, new energy, and especially also maritime cooperation would be also very, very, uh, you know, important sectors for this uh, cooperation. Mm. Right, Dr. Tsui, so on critical global issues like uh, global governance, climate issue, etc., what are the common interests of China and Spain? Firstly, as we know, uh, as a member of the European Union, Spain has uh, uh, also very big concern on climate change and also related to the uh, green economy, some other. And at the same time, on some um, regional and global uh, security issues, both China and Spain, I think, shared a lot. Especially if we look at the recent uh, conflict between uh, Israel and Palestine, uh, we can find that those two countries shared a lot of uh, uh, common ground on this issue. And those countries, uh, uh, you know, mm-hmm. are calling for the uh, mediation and the destination of the situation and look for some more uh, diplomatic solution. I think it's different from you know, the attitude or stance from of some other Western countries. Mm. And certainly this uh, people-to-people uh, contact between those two countries uh, ha- has also achieved a lot. So I think it's a very comprehensive and also very systemic cooperation between mm. the countries. Right. Dr. Tsui, uh, European leaders, uh, especially, you know, leaders of the European Union have have proposed uh, the so-called de-risking from China policy recently. How would you co- comment on that? And how would you comment on, you know, in general, on the current China policy by the European Union? Certainly, recently, recently uh, European Union side uh, launched a kind of so-called, so-called de-risking, uh, you know, strategy towards China. So I think, firstly, it's a little bit of discriminatory uh, mm-hmm. policy towards China. As we know, there's no any reason for European side to have its own uh, unilateral de-risking strategy towards China, especially both two sides still are in the um, strategic partnership. Another, I think, a very big issue now for China and the EU relationship is once there is some more so-called de-risking strategy towards mm-hmm. China, mm-hmm. How about this um, uh, existing cooperation? Uh, it looks like the European Union tried to have a kind of a balance between so-called partner and uh, competitor and also rival. Mm. But uh, in practice, we can find that it's uh, very difficult for European side to manage this kind of uh, so-called balance uh, relations. So that's the reason why so far China does not accept the concept and also the strategy in the name of uh, the risk. Uh, of course, now China is trying to 
help the European Union to understand the real situation uh, in the cooperation between two sides. And China tried to uh, find out a way to build up the common ground with the European Union to deal with the so-called uh, security of, of the supply and industry chain uh, to a common challenge. It's not a challenge. It's not a challenge from China towards Europe. Indeed, it's a challenge both China and the EU could face together and mm-hmm. work together mm-hmm. to deal with it. Well, Dr. Zui, uh, Wang Yi stressed the importance of the European Union in, during his visit in Spain. Uh, I mean, where does China put uh, European Union in its uh, foreign policy, uh, especially you know against the background of what you have already said, the systemic uh, rivalry between China and the United States? Uh, firstly, as we know, this year uh, was also a very, very uh, big big time for China and the EU and the European countries mm. to develop uh, relations. There will be some more uh, events happen uh, on the uh, uh, I mean, high-level exchange and also some more uh, uh, comprehensive cooperation in trade, economy, and even people-to-people. So I think now it's time for China to strengthen uh, its cooperation with the uh, European side. But of course, so far, these relations in China and the European Union become a little bit more complex, uh, especially considering with the past. So I think for both sides, we need to also uh, deal with some frications uh, uh, or some, uh, you know, uh, divergences. Uh, especially now, there are some uh, so-called investigation on anti anti uh, subsidies mm-hmm. on the EVs or recently the. Uh, twin makers uh, in China. Indeed. So uh, there will be some uh, problem, but I hope that, uh, or I believe that uh, both sides need to find uh, some new way to deal with this uh, uh, new problem. And mm. also, by overcome all of the challenges, mm. certainly there will be more resilience for these relations, mm. and there will be more uh, blight, uh, you know, prospect uh, for mm. these relations. Indeed. In Thank you. That was Dr. Cui Hongjian, professor with Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Coming up, the European Union has launched a mission in the Red Sea. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Hey, this is Ding Han from World Today. Hello, this is Guo Yan from the Beijing Hour. For the year of the Chinese dragon in 2024, Wishing you success in everything you do in the year of the dragon. Hello, I'm Jane with Takeaway Chinese. May the year of the Chinese dragon bring you boundless opportunities and amazing achievements in your career. I would like to wish you May this auspicious year bring you abundant opportunities to realize your dreams and showcase your talents. Happy Chinese New Year! Welcome back to World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. The European Union has launched a naval mission in the Red Sea and the Gulf regions amid attacks launched by Yemen's Houthi group against Western vessels. The Council of the EU says the mission aims to restore and safeguard freedom of navigation in the Red Sea and the Gulf regions. The mission's headquarters will be based in Larissa, Greece. For more, I earlier had a conversation with Greg Barton, professor of global Islamic politics at Deakin University in Australia. Professor, the EU has launched its own uh, Red Sea mission. Uh, I mean, first up, what are the main interests, uh, especially in terms of commerce uh, of the European Union in the passage of the Red Sea? As a, as a body of countries that um, interact with the Mediterranean Sea and the Suez Canal. So that passage through the Suez Canal into the Red Sea, um, through to the rest of the world, particularly through to Asia, is vitally important uh, in terms of the volume of shipping that passes through there. Uh, globally, it's a significant proportion of global shipping. In terms of, of European shipping, it's an even larger proportion. So take away the, the North Atlantic trade and uh, the Suez Canal is, is critically important. So not being able to um, easily or safely navigate the Red Sea or, or facing problems with shipping insurers who are uncomfortable with the level of risk uh, 
is a, is, is a really serious problem. In the short term, you can work around it, but in the long term, you've got to solve it. Then, uh, technically, Professor, why did uh, the EU mission choose a, a port city in Greece as a main、uh, base of this mission? To work out of the Mediterranean,、uh, mm. and、uh, your options then are obviously along the north shore of the Mediterranean.、Uh, logisti- logistically, it makes sense to be operating at the eastern end of the Mediterranean.、Mm. Um, so Greece is is a, is a logical position to be based in. It's not the only option they could have gone with, but it's probably the most straightforward. Mm. Well, Professor, U.S. and British forces have bombed multiple targets、uh, used by the Houthis. However, the European、uh, Union mission will not take part in any military strikes and will only operate at sea. How would you comment on the EU position? What are the main considerations? Do you think? Well, I think there's a lot of practical considerations. I mean, bear in mind that Saudi Arabia with the UAE that was involved in an eight-year-long military campaign against the Houthis. In Yemen, you could say it failed. It certainly failed to achieve its purpose. So, eight years of, of really intense military campaigns didn't solve the problem.、Uh, whatever would be done now would be a lesser military campaign were it to be attempted. So, what what America has done is a, is kind of a very selected and limited military campaign. Even if the EU had the appetite to engage in a military campaign, I think from a analysis of of defence and strategic interests, it's unlikely you can solve this problem with military methods because it hasn't worked so far.、Mm. Which means that you you need to look at other solutions. And it's partly perhaps by making it too difficult to carry on doing what they're doing. It also means putting pressure on Iran, which、uh, doesn't completely control the Houthis. The Houthis are not completely res- directed by Tehran, but to a considerable extent, Tehran is a major driver. In the past few days, Houthis have allegedly attacked a British ship and、uh, two American ones. How are the recent developments affecting, you know, the situation around the Red Sea then? Well, this has really escalated things. Up until now, we've had、um, some concerning developments, a, a high intensity of, of sort of drone and, and rocket attacks. Um, one case of a ship being boarded and taken into port,、uh, but this is the first time we've had a serious impact such that the ship has had to be abandoned. And if you think about what's involved commercially with shipping, you you need、um, insurance companies who underwrite every every single voyage and approve to what you're doing. So when you've got a situation where the attack has been so serious that it's incapacitated a, a vessel and, and crew have had to abandon ship. Uh, that's the point at which you're not going to get insurance for running that route. So that that's kind of a tipping point. In your observation,、um, I mean, what have been the ramifications of the disruption in the Red Sea Passage on the global shipping industry, really? Well, the ramifications are basically cost, cost and time,、uh, mm-hmm. and and a sense of certainty, which also feeds into cost. So, the alternative, of course, to the Red Sea is to go around the continent of Africa.、Uh, that can add a couple of weeks、uh, sailing time. Which means extra expense,、uh, but it also means that your crew、uh, is on board for much longer than they had planned. So that that impacts on your ability to get crews and to manage ships. You're spending more fuel, of course.、Uh, it, it, it's basically, at the end of the day, a financial concern, but also the uncertainty. Uncertainty means you end up paying higher rates for insurance and everything else, even when you make adjustments. So. For a short period of time, for a period of months, you can work around, but but、um, in the longer run,、uh, you need to find a solution. Of course, the, the, this is bound up very much with developments in in Israel and Gaza.、Mm. Uh, that doesn't necessarily guarantee you can solve the problem, but it, it's something you have to consider in the in the mix of things. Well, as you as you already said,、uh, the situation in the Red Sea is very closely linked to the conflict between Israel and Palestine. All European e- EU countries,、uh, except Hungary, have warned Israel on Monday against launching an offensive in Rafah. How how do you comment on the EU position on this possible attack? Well, the、uh, European position is is pretty much.、Um, A position shared with North America, certainly shared with、uh, Australia, where I am,、mm. that、uh, this war in Gaza has come at a terrible human cost, and it's unlikely to be producing the security for Israel that Israel says it's producing. So, when you have 30,000 lives lost, possibly more, tens of thousands of people injured,、um, most, you know, more than two thirds of the physical、uh, accommodation destroyed,、uh, 14,000. Lives lost to just children—that's you know, massive cost. So Israel, I think, has taken a,、um, a a very emotional response to a problem, but it's not solving it for them. And this last straw comes with Rafah. So having 
told the population of Gaza, 2.1 million people, to, to move south, move south, away from where we were conducting military operations. Finally, they end up crowded into Rafa, and then to say, OK, now we need to launch an operation in Rafa. Uh, possibly that you can find alternative accommodation in the middle of Gaza, but, you know, it's, it, it, it's not been clear to anyone that moving and responding to Israeli orders guarantees safety. People are demoralised. They're at the point of, of um, such poor access to food that, that in some cases we're seeing severe malnutrition. Um, we've seen almost all the medical facilities in Gaza destroyed. Uh, and of course, it, this is you know, a population of two plus million. So every day women are giving birth, um, children need help. Uh, just the, the regular needs of that population of people is not being met. So this is, the, this is the breaking point. I mean, I think Israel has gone further than the international community ever imagined or wanted it to do. But now Rafa is a breaking point. So what the EU was saying is just absolute common sense. And that includes common sense from the point of view of the security of the, of the nation of Israel. Mm. Well, then o- overall, Professor, what role have EU countries played in, you know, in the Israel-Palestine conflict? And uh, really, what more can European countries do? Well, one of the big criticisms which is, is called against uh, Europe to some extent, but particularly against the US, is that you say you don't want this military operation to go on and you keep supplying munitions. So America mm. in particular is, is justly criticised for supplying the very bombs that are dropped. Uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defence Forces, using a lot of 2,000-pound JDEMs, sort of dumb bombs that are designed to destroy underground bunkers and tunnels. It's not clear that they're doing that, but they certainly have the impact of causing localised, you know, essentially earthquake effects that cause buildings to collapse because their foundations are... Uh, are so damaged that the, the buildings fall down. And that's caused massive loss of life and, and injury, but also is one of the reasons why there's so little of the original housing stock is available to be used in Gaza. So a massive rebuilding problem ahead. Um, that's done with US munitions and, and to some extent with European munitions. So this mm-hmm. is a particular challenge to the Biden administration, but also to European governments that you know you, you have concerns, you express concerns of what's going on, say it should stop, and yet you, you're making it uh, possible for the Israeli government to carry on doing what it's doing. Mm, indeed. One more question, Professor. Israel's cabinet on Sunday approved a resolution rejecting any international attempts to impose a Palestinian state, uh, saying that Israel would have to directly negotiate any permanent re- arrangement with the Palestinians. I mean, how significant is that development? Uh, it's, uh, it's a sign of obstinacy and, and mm. stubbornness, which defies each sort of rational explanation. It, it's tied to the fact that this is an extremely right-wing government and that the prime minister, who is not as right-wing as some of his ministers, nevertheless, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, is fighting for his political survival. That's why he doesn't want to sort of give in. And he, he's, he's, he's beholden to his right-wing colleagues. They, you know, in, in the core of their being, don't believe in a, a, a two-state solution but if you ask yourself the question, who is going to rebuild Gaza and who is going to rule Gaza and, mm. and make sure that groups like Hamas don't cause a future threat to Israel, there is, there is no answer that is sustainable that doesn't involve a just and durable political solution, which sees some sort of a Palestinian administration uh, managing Gaza and, and beyond. Um, Saudi Arabia said it's prepared to step in, but only if there's a two-state solution. So mm. uh, this is just a stubborn and unrealistic response from the government um, in Israel that, in the end, I think the international community is, is calling their bluff and saying, well, we're not going to keep on doing this. You, you know, you, if, you, if you want the international community to support you, then you have to recognise you need to find a, a just and durable political solution. And by the way, for your own security, for their future of your citizens, that's, that's key to, to guaranteeing security. Greg Barton, Professor of Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University in Australia. Coming up, Chinese provincial governments discuss ways to boost their business environment and private sector. You're listening to World Today. For more discussions, follow us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome. I'm Elaf Elard. 
economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Meetings are being held in many provinces across China to explore ways to boost their business environment and private sector on the first working day after the Spring Festival holiday. Guangdong held a meeting to urge efforts for technological innovation and digitalization of 9,200 major industrial enterprises. Shandong held a conference on high-level opening up, calling for more support to attract foreign investment. Anhui and Liaoning provinces held meetings urging for improvement in their business environment and provision of opportunities for private enterprises. Meanwhile, Shanghai continues its efforts in optimizing its business environment. The State Council has just approved the general plan of constructing the Eastern Hub International Business Cooperation Zone in Shanghai. For more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So, Dr. Zhou, many provincial and municipal governments held meetings. What is called the first meeting after the Lunar New Year, and for example, Guangdong Province will step up、uh, efforts to promote innovation in industrial technology to push forward with the、uh, high quality development. So, what advantages does Guangdong have on the industrial or technological innovation? Do you think? Yes, for Guangdong, it's、uh, the first areas for China to open in the history, so it's benefited by the interaction between China's domestic market and the international communities. We know that Guangdong is also a very important regions that China、uh, are trying to integrate different resources. So in my understanding, there are mainly two advantages. The first one is the openness, because Guangdong is、uh, the, the better、uh, the frontiers of openness, and it has a lot of、uh, cooperation with the foreign. Market, so they know what is happening there, and they can benefit by the two-way communications between these domestic and foreign markets. Well, the second is that integration of the Great Bay areas. It have many cooperation with Hong Kong and Macau. So the communications about the human resources, the financial resources, and also a lot of small and medium-sized enterprises has making it more strengthened of the supply chains there. It's a very important base for many of the many. Manufacturers in Guangdong. Hmm. And the province GDP hit 13 trillion yuan or 1.8 trillion U.S. dollars last year, and this is、uh, up 4.8 percent year on year. So, what do you think are the main reasons for the economic development in Guangdong over the past year? And what do you think are opportunities and challenges that this province can expect this year? Yeah, we know that Guangdong is the areas to open. So many of the people there have a very、uh, bright and clear understanding about the openness. So last year is the first year after the COVID-19. So we see that、uh, Guangdong has practiced a lot trying to go abroad by the you know the leading of the commercial departments locally to the other countries to trying to re-establish the links between the domestic market and the foreign market. Well, it is also true that uh, this uh, province is trying to. To maximize the usage of the different technology, which is a very important element to to strengthen its recovery. Well, for this year, I have to say the world is still suffering from a lot of uncertainty from the geopolitical reasons for the reconstructing of of global supply chain and also some of the you know the differences about the international、uh, trade agreements and other rules. We have to try to find out some ways to address these challenges. I think that is the problem that Guangdong should、uh, have to address this year.、Mm, and how do you compare the economic structure of Shenzhen with Guangzhou? In what way? Are they complementary? Do you think? Yeah, these two cities has a lot of similarities. They also,、uh, you know, locates in the same region of the Lingnan culture. So they have many、uh, similarities, but there are also many、uh, differences. I think that Guangzhou is one of the first or earliest cities to open. So it have a history, history of cooperation with、uh, the foreign markets and also the supply chains and understanding about the, the world better. Well, the Shenzhen, these are new、uh, cities coming from. 
of small village. So the lot of people there are coming from other provinces or other regions. It's a, have a, a much more innovative ways of thinking. So I think that has uh, attracted so many uh, companies uh, which are key in the uh, industries of uh, innovative like the DJI, the Dajiang and also uh, Tencent and also Huawei. So we know that Shenzhen has attracted some new companies there and the cooperation between these two cities can have a much more complementary ways in the world in such a you know the uh, world of uh, changes. Mm. And Shanghai is also quite important for China's economy. The state council has just approved the general plan of constructing the Eastern Hub International Business Cooperation Zone in Shanghai. So why is it now and what does it mean for not only the city of Shanghai but also China's opening up? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, uh, Shanghai is uh, one of the very important cities in China. It's in the eastern part. It's in the lower Yangtze River Valley. And uh, Shanghai is uh, a very uh, a big city, not only for the trade, but also for its domestic market. So we know that for the oriental center uh, of this one, it's a kind of trying to separate the functions of the uh, original ones in the Hongqiao Airport. So in the Hongqiao, it's uh, originally it's uh, uh, that kind of uh, uh, transportation centers or hub to connecting the domestic and the international. But Shanghai is trying to develop that differences. For the new Oriental Center, it's mainly focused on the international connections. For the you know the old one, they're trying to put more efforts on the domestic integration. We know that Shanghai is uh, also the center of the Lower Yangtze River or or we call it the Yangtze Delta uh, mm. Corporation. And that is a kind of, uh, you know, important future for China for the development. It's a combination of the finance about the manufacturing, the cooperation with uh, Jiangsu province and Zhejiang province. So I believe it is a kind of very important, you know, uh, a plan to try to strengthen the integration uh, in this region, not only for Shanghai itself. Mm. And how do you view Shanghai's pillar industries, the bioeconomy, the financial services and high-end or high-tech manufacturing? Shanghai is leading the trend in the financial areas in China. So it's also attracted many of the world leading companies going there, like in the financial sectors, the banks, the insurance companies, and also many of the security related companies. It's a, a place for, you know, encouraging the integration and also innovation in the financial areas. So it's, it's also a kind of a place for the fashion related industries. So I believe that Shanghai can do more by by opening up uh, the, the market and trying to welcome the cooperation between the foreign investors and the Chinese own investors. So it's a, a really possible way for Shanghai to develop and explore a better development path. Mm. And for other provinces, for example, Shandong is now focused on the high level opening up. They called for more support to attract foreign investment. So what's the economic structure of Shandong? Does it have a lot of uh, foreign investment or what can be done to attract them? Shandong is also our uh, kind of, you know, in the first uh, several positions in China by the outward investing. And also, I think that for the foreign uh, investment, for the inflows of the FDI, it is trying to strengthen its position. Because traditionally, Shandong is good at uh, the cooperation with uh, South Korea and Japan. Now it's trying to develop these areas uh, in, into a more wider areas uh, by the RCEP, you know, the, uh, the free trade agreement has improved our better and integrated areas for the regional cooperation. So Shandong is trying to develop and trying to explore more rooms in the attracting the foreign investors. It has many good bases, like for uh, some of the manufacturing, some of the you know raw materials sectors, it has a lot of advantages. Mm. And Anhui and Liaoning provinces are now making efforts to improve the business environment and provide opportunities for private enterprises. So how important is private enterprises for them and what can the local government do to improve the business environment for them? Yeah, you know, the Anhui is in the central China while Liaoning is in the northeast China. For both of these areas, it's not as developed as uh, the coastal areas like Guangdong and Shanghai, but it's trying to maximize its own advantages by integration, the, you know, the uh, different elements for the development and also for 
for Anhui, I, I would say that Anhui is trying to use its uh, intelligence resources, like uh, for some uh, very important universities, they are there, and it has a uh, benefit by the cooperation and the uh, and the mass market there. Well, for Liaoning, uh, it's a it's a very important industrial base for China, like for the steel and other heavy industries, they have the basis. So how can they, uh, you know, stimulate the increased speed? I would say that the small and medium-sized enterprises from the private sectors are really important. So they can have a very, you know, a good cooperation in this region. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. This is World Today. Be right back. As one of CGTN Radio's most popular programs, World Today provides listeners with a strong mix of international news and business. It delivers in-depth analysis of current affairs and one-on-one interviews, bringing you the stories behind the news, not just what's happening, but why. Welcome back to World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. China's foreign ministry has said attempts from certain political forces to create, quote-unquote, a forced decoupling, forced unemployment, and a forced return to poverty in Xinjiang under the pretext of human rights will not succeed. Responding to questions, spokesperson Mao Ning highlighted this at a routine briefing. Reports indicate German companies like Volkswagen and BASF are contemplating withdrawing from Xinjiang over concerns of the so-called forced labor and detention camps. Mao Ning referenced Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi's remarks at the Munich Security Conference, where he denounced the spread of lies and disinformation about Xinjiang, citing forced labor as a prime example. Mao Ning urged companies to discern truths from falsehood and encouraged respecting facts and seizing investment opportunities in Xinjiang. For more, joining us in the studio is my colleague, Ge Anna. Thank you, Anna, for talking to us. Thanks for having me. Now, to start, could you please specify the source of the report, you know, regarding Volkswagen and Bass, Bass uh, considering this withdrawal? How credible is the source in providing information on corporate decisions? Of course, uh, the report on this corporation's decision went viral, first pi- uh, published by a German media called Handels Blatt, and then by the Financial Times. It alleges that Volkswagen, in partnership with Saic, a Beijing-owned carmaker, benefited from the so-called forced labor while constructing a test track for cars in Xinjiang back in 2019, despite Volkswagen's previous announcement that an audit cleared such a uh, allegations. You know, Quinn, as Euro, um, Western, some Western media reports on Xinjiang's alleged human rights issues are lack solid evidence to back claims like the so-called forced labor. Mm-hmm. So they using distorted images or made-up stories, and they target Chinese enterprises or foreign enterprises in China, such as Volkswagen and Bassful, to create sensational headlines that paint China in an active light. Uh, facing these rumors, not every company opts to hold a press conferences or formally respond because this technique of reporting has become so common in recent years in the Western narratives. So regarding the reliability or credibility of this source you asked, mm. uh, it's worth noting that uh, the report cites Adrian Zins, a notorious anti-China figure who has been sued by numerous companies in China mm-hmm. for fabricating forced labor mm-hmm. human rights allegations in Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. And uh, he posted a picture on X platform claiming Uyghur workers at SAIC factory wearing military uniforms, implying that they're, they are involved uh, in forced labor. I specifically found this picture and turns out that this so-called military uniforms are common workwear or a standard work attire commonly seen in China. The only thing that makes these uniforms relevant to military is their um, camouflage design, Mm. which is a very common garment, not only in Xinjiang, but also in uh, 
any engineering companies, construction sites, and workshops all over China because it's durable and strong. And the reason these people are gathered in the picture is because they are holding banners to welcome colleagues of all ethnic groups to visit their construction site.、Mm-hmm. So, simply based on such a picture, these so-called Chinese experts can fabricate a vivid anti-human drama. This photo alone doesn't provide any substantial、mm-hmm. evidence. So, how can we talk about credibility or reliability of this source?、Mm-hmm. So. I think、um, the professionalism and integrity of these so-called experts are also questionable.、Mm-hmm. Their main name seems to, you know, pressure enterprises in China and disrupting cooperation and undermining the development and stability of Xinjiang.、Mm. Also,、uh, Anna, could you please elaborate on the remarks made by、uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi regarding the spread of、uh, misinformation about Xinjiang, especially, you know, on forced labor? You know, during the Munich Security Conference, as you pointed out in the lead, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi noted that certain political forces have spread. Uh, too many lies about Xinjiang and produced too much disinformation for the world. And the so-called forced labor is one of such example. Such lies about Xinjiang aim to cause disruption, thereby preventing China's development and revitalization. As I mentioned in the previous question, yes, over the past years, China has faced numerous baseless and absurd smear campaigns, especially concerning the issue of Xinjiang. But why do The United States and the West hysterically suppress Xinjiang.、Uh, let me give you some cases、um, that could answer this question、uh, to some extent. Former Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating pointed out bluntly,、mm-hmm. China's problem is that it has become a strong country comparable to the United States, and it may even be、uh, much stronger than the United States in the future.、Mm-hmm. So, this is an unforgivable thing for those who believe in the inevitable victory of the United States. So, in short. The United States cannot accept the possibility of being overtaken by any country, including China, one day.、Mm-hmm. So the so-called Xinjiang issue is entirely a strategic conspiracy by the United States to、uh, disrupt China from within. Because back in 2018, former senior U.S. official Lawrence Wilkerson said, "The U.S. would want to destabilize China, and the best way to do so would be to sow discord in Xinjiang and incite the Uyghurs to disrupt China from within." And、uh, Sheila Carey,、mm. the Council and head of the economic and polit-、uh, political section of the U.S. Consulate General in Guangzhou, told guests at a cocktail reception、mm. back in 2021,、uh, the U.S. government hopes U.S. businesses in China could understand. The government is very clear that nothing's wrong about Xinjiang, but to hype forced labor, genocide, and to attack China's human rights policies through the Xinjiang issue. Are an effective means to fight against the Chinese government and ultimately get the Chinese government bogged down.、Mm. So, do they really care about weaker groups or、uh, weaker group or human rights in Xinjiang, or they just want to use forced labor、uh, as an excuse to blame China and essentially aim to take jobs away from the weaker people and make their products unsellable and creating, you know, more harsh environment to the、uh, to the region.、Mm. Now, also、uh, one more thing, Anna.、Um, I'm just curious. I mean, what responses have these companies provided regarding the report so far?、Uh, in a statement that Bassful sent to the Global Times,、uh, the company said its presence in China remains unchanged, and the Bassful is fully committed to its business activities and planned investments in the country.、Mm-hmm. And Volkswagen has not responded to any interview request. Of any Chinese media yet, as far as I know, but earlier it has responded to these fresh allegations by announcing talks with its Chinese joint venture partners over the future direction of the business in the region.、Um, but I don't think any of their responses indicate. 
that they will withdraw from the region or China,、uh, but Basfo may adjust its shares accordingly as its global strategy changes, cause its value chain are under increased competitive pressure and characterized by global overcapacities.、Mm-hmm. And Volkswagen CEO expressed many times that they had deep concerns about reports reflecting the so-called forced labor situation in the region, and conducted thorough investments. They have never found any signs of human rights violation in Xinjiang factories. So, as spokesperson Morning said, China hopes relevant companies will respect the facts, distinguish right from wrong, and cherish the opportunity to invest and develop in Xinjiang.、Mm. Thank you for providing so much、uh, detail on this issue. I wish we had more time, but、uh, we indeed have to move on to the next topic. That was my colleague Gaana on some、uh, Western reports about、uh, European companies considering moving out of Xinjiang because of so-called、uh, forced labor concerns. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy management. At Tsinghua University in Beijing, I am a great listener of the World Today. In my opinion, the World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In the World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please come to join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. China has expressed concerns over an EU investigation into a major Chinese train-making company on so-called subsidy issues. EU announced an investigation last week into CRRC Qingdao Sifang locomotive for what it calls using subsidies to undercut European supplies. The probe could block the company from winning a contract in Bulgaria. China's foreign ministry spokesperson Mao Ning said on Monday that China hopes the European side will take a cautious attitude towards regulations on foreign subsidies. Mao Ning also urged the EU side to resolve specific trade issues through dialogue and consultation and create a fair, equitable, and non-discriminatory business environment for Chinese companies. For more, we're joined by Dr. Yao Shujie, Changkong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Happy Chinese New Year, Doctor Yao. Thank you for joining us again. Yeah, Happy Chinese New Year. Now,、nice do- talking to you.、Mm, now, Doctor Yao, the investigation is over a bid by CRIC Qingdao Sifang Locomotive,、uh, a sub a subsidiary of、uh, CRIC, which is you know the world's one of the world's largest train manufacturer,、um, to sell trains、uh, to Bulgaria.、Um, now. Dr. Yao, first of all, tell us、um, what you know about CRIC and what about its manufacturing capabilities. Yeah, CRIC is the biggest、um, automobile manufacturer、uh, in China and probably in the world,、uh, because China have a huge market, which is signified by the high-speed rail, which is uh, uh, over four. Forty thousand kilometers nowadays,、mm. and all the all the automobile, sorry,、uh, you know the train, the, particularly the bullet train, they are produced by CRRC and the truck technology and so on and so forth. So it is a it is a gigantic company,、uh, and the ambition of CRRC is not only to meet the domestic demand, but also to export technology and product. To the rest of the world,、mm. I think the initiative to go to Bulgaria is one of the the, the elements that CRC try to、uh, go out to, to to produce not only the technology and product for the domestic market but for the European market because、uh, Bulgaria could be a stepstone to enter Western Europe. Indeed. Now,、uh, Dr. Yao, EU said its action is based on its foreign subsidies regulation. The regulation came into effect last year. The Commission, the EU Commission, has until July the second to make a ruling of this Bulgarian case.、Um, I mean, Dr. Yao, what are the main purposes of the EU's foreign subsidies regulation? Yeah, basically, the EU and any other economy block. When they when they try to、uh, buy something, particularly the high value,、uh, big bulk product like auto, like you know the train, 
uh, they are concerned whether maybe the, the Chinese government is subsidizing the product so that they can have some sort of competitive, uh, unfair competitive advantage. But on the Chinese side, you have to prove that uh, the Chinese product is, is cheaper, mm. uh, reliable, high quality, without government uh, subsidy. Uh, because the domestic market, as I mentioned, is so large, then to expand into the rest of the world, mm-hmm. the, the Chinese authority and the CRRC, they must be fully aware that it needs to have a fair competition in the rest of the world in order to, uh, you know, to make the business profitable. And the investigation by the EU, I think, is uh, could be commercial reason, but it could be motivated by sort of uh, protectionism uh, to protect the domestic uh, production line, particularly in those countries like Germany, uh, France, uh, and other countries. They also produce the same product, but they are far more expensive. So the only way to to, to you know deter some sort of large scale export into the European market is to uh, set set out these some sort of uh, non uh, you know hurdles. Mm. The non-tariff hurdle is uh, through this uh, investigation using the excuse of subsidies. And um, it, this could be a, a rather painful process for the Chinese company. Mm. Well, uh, Dr. Yao, the China Chamber of Commerce to the European Union said in a statement, uh, quote-unquote, the initiation of an in-depth investigation into CRSA Qingdao Sifang locomotive by the European Commission has sent a discouraging message to Chinese investors intending to cultivate and operate in the EU market. Um, Dr. Yao, how do, you, how do you comment on the statement? Will that be the case? Yeah, I think the Chinese authority, particularly the CRRC and the Chinese ministry in charge of the export, they would certainly feel unjustified mm-hmm. uh, due to the subsidy investigation. And the Chinese uh, you know, stakeholder, the government uh, policymakers, they are also fully aware this kind of uh, using the subsidy as an excuse to investigate the Chinese export to the European market. It would not only slow down the, the export, uh, increase the cost of uh, exporting product, and also slow down the process of penetrating into a potentially highly profitable market in uh, Western Europe. Mm. So, yes, I think there are every reason for the uh, Chinese government to raise some concern. Right. And uh, I think in the future, maybe uh, people have to look at the real uh, situation whether the, the locomotive are actually subsidized or not. Mm. Uh, my, I, I cannot say for certain, but I'm sure uh, the Chinese uh, CRC company they they have been in business for so many years and have been so successful in mm. the domestic market. I trust they would be able to produce a competitive product without government subsidies. Mm. Thank you. We appreciate your time and insight. That was Dr. Yao Shujie, Chang Kong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of the headlines. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi expresses China's willingness to maintain high-level exchanges with Spain. The European Union launches a naval mission in the Red Sea and the Gulf regions. And Chinese provincial governments hold meetings to explore ways to improve their business environment and private sector. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For more discussions, follow us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.